iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Hello and welcome to the Game World Cup podcast from The Times. I'm Natalie Sawyer. Is this finally the summer that football comes home? England have progressed as winners of Group D with a perfect record after beating Japan last night. Here to analyse the performance of Phil Neville's side, we're joined by former England, West Ham and Chelsea defender Claire Rafferty. And down the line from France, from the Times and the Sunday Times, we have Molly Hudson and Rebecca Myers. Later on, we'll be discussing the controversial new VAR trend that knocked out Scotland and be asking why so few people are watching the games in Nice. But first, we start with England, who beat Japan 2-0 last night after Phil Neville made eight changes to his team. The England coach has made 12 changes in all to his team since the opening game of the tournament. That's more than any other nation. Molly, you were at the game last night and heard Neville speak. How did he explain his selection policy? I think, once again, he sort of reinstated that actually he doesn't have a preferred starting eleven. What he, in fact, does is he looks at the opposition and picks players that he thinks will do the best against them. So, you know, the the players that say, for example, Rachel Daly, who started last night, he sort of picked her out as somebody that could um, really hurt Japan with her pace and that, that came to fruition in the game. And I think he believes that, um, you know, he, he doesn't have to play her in a game the same way that he doesn't have to play any other player in every game. He literally picks it on the opposition and who they're profiled as to be players that are going to affect that. And particularly talked a lot about sort of the Manchester City element of the squad and how important it is for, say, Georgia Stanway to be around people that she plays in for her club. And that's been a big part of his team selection. Claire, as a player, would it motivate you or would it make you feel a little bit apprehensive if, if a manager is continuously changing his team? Um, you know, from past experiences, you know, I've played in England teams where there hasn't been a great deal of rotation. Uh, going back a good eight years ago now, I remember in the, my first World Cup, um, the, the team is quite set in stone and, and you went knowing that you probably weren't going to play a great deal. Um, and what that does, though, when you, when you are involved more and you, you, there is an increased likelihood of playing is is you're more invested in the team. You you know that you can potentially come on and win a game because the likelihood of you, you going on is, is more. And also you feel you know more self-confident because your own attributes are being highlighted and praised. Um, and you know that you're bringing something to the team rather than, um, you know, almost making up the numbers. As Molly said, Neville then planning to pick each side dependent on who England face. But let's work out our own best England eleven. Rebecca, let's come to you. Who would you say would be the strongest side that Neville could put out? I mean, I think we've got, you know, we've certainly got players now that we know um, he feels are his strongest players. And I think he certainly, what we've noticed, is probably the, the only pattern that we can really... <laughs> say there has been is this sort of fallback you know this reliance on the very senior players your Lucy Bronzes certainly Steph I, I think will almost start every single game I don't think I think he relies on her quite heavily to do kind of man management on the field um, so any starting 11 that, that we've been putting together um, I think we'll, you know we will be including Steph for, for certainly for the foreseeable um, and yeah like I said then, then those players like Lucy um, Ellen it has, although she didn't start in the second game but I think she'll be a, a starting player going forward in almost every match. 
so those are probably, you know, at least two. I think also, you know, difficult games. Karen Barsley will will be in, certainly in the preferred starting eleven. We know she is um, his preferred goalkeeper, um, and Nikita Paris will be in a in a preferred eleven for sure going forward. Okay, so that's uh, Rebecca's take. Molly, what would your starting eleven be then? You have to look at the experience, particularly going forward, because we're going into the knockouts. And I think you you look at players like Karen Barsley, Seth, Lucy Bronze, who have been around and they've been in teams that that have done well in in the latter stages of major tournaments. And I think that suddenly becomes really important, particularly if you are going to play people like Nikita Paris, Beth Mead. Um, they've been in excellent form, but they haven't really got that experience in major tournaments. So I think it's it's about finding that mix. And I think you know you have to risk players like Nikita Paris and Beth Mead just because of the form they've been in. Mm. But you need that sort of experience to blend in with that. Last night we saw a back four of Bronze, Horton, Bright and Stokes. Is that the strongest back four for you, Claire? Yes, I think so. Um, Defensively anyway, I think Demi um, has a little bit more awareness uh, with her defensive positioning whereas Alex is, is more free-flowing moving forward. So Alex Greenwood. Yes, Alex mm. Greenwood. I, I think um, Millie and Steph in the middle are the, the two uh, strongest for me and the, and the two clearest leaders. Um, and obviously Lucy Bronze picks herself. Mm. But for the debate between um, Karen Barsley and, and Carly Telford, I think um, you saw England trying to play at the back a little bit. And I think if you want to have a possession-based football style you need to be playing Kylie Telford in goal because she's a little bit more uh, confident on the ball more more technical but we, we, we saw Karen Barzi save England equally with that fantastic um, top corner uh, save for the free kick so mm. they both have their strengths and I, I think it's obvious that he's nodding towards uh, Karen Barsley but for me moving forward I don't think we'll see a great deal of change in that back line because we're at the um you know, the tail end of the tournament now and, and every win counts and he needs to get as much solidarity and robustness as possible. Of course, one of the key changes against Japan was the return of Ellen White to lead the line. She was pivotal for England. Um, Rebecca, how good was she last night and is she England's best forward for you? She she was superb. I mean, she's so clinical and I think that is what we often forget about Ellen. She turns out to be big games. And she just she only needed two chances. All the players said that last night. She needed two chances. She got both of them. She was absolutely phenomenal. Um, I I think Ellen's an amazing player, and I also I'm really sort of chuffed to see her getting the recognition she deserves. Um, you know, she's 30 now. She's been playing for um, you know best part of a decade. I think she's she's been to three World Cups. Um, and it's only now that she's signing for Man City. It's only now that she's getting this kind of recognition. Um, and I think that's a wonderful thing. I think, you know, we talk obviously a lot about Nikita and Nikita is a wonderful player. But Ellen has that real kind of high class, top quality. She's never going to crack under pressure. And um, I think Phil trusts her a huge amount. I think he just knows he plays her and, and she'll come up trump. Claire, who would you pick in your forward line for England? A couple of days ago when we were discussing this, I did, I did say Jodie, but that was before <laughs> Ellen turned around and scored them uh, two great <laughs> chances. Yeah, I'm, I'll just confirm everything that Rebecca said there. Having grown up playing with Ellen, I know how fantastic she is. You know, she's so clinical, so hardworking, um, and she does bring that 
um, increased competitiveness. I think it's, you know, she wears her heart on her sleeve and it's very visible how she feels. Um, and I think sometimes you need that. You need, you, you know, she doesn't have a poker face. You, you know when she's frustrated, you know when she's happy. So I think that kind of expression is exactly what Phil's been wanting in his team. He wants them to be themselves. Um, and Ellen White definitely does that. And um, I think she's secured the nod ahead of Jodie so far. It's a good headache for Phil to have, though, to have two strikers in form. Oh, yeah. I mean, what a fantastic uh, dilemma he's in. Uh, equally, you know, if Ellen's not performing in the game, Jodie can come on and do the exact same job. So uh, it, it is light for light for me. Uh, Ellen's just um, tipping the iceberg with, with them two fantastic uh, finishes against Japan. And she just loves to score against Japan. She scored in every World Cup against them now, so... Mm. Georgia Stanway, I thought, was particularly impressive on her first World Cup start. Molly, what did you make of Stanway's performance and do you think she could force her way into a regular starting place in, in the team? I think she could. I think just the way she approached the game was so refreshing. I think you see how, how good she's been for Manchester City and she's almost become an integral part of that team so young. I mean, she's only 20. And you, you, you do question, you know, when we saw the starting 11 last night, we thought, you know, is it too soon? Because I think even Phil said himself, she was maybe surprised that she was starting. But actually, just from that very first minute, she got herself on the ball. I mean, she, she set up Ellen's first goal with some real determined play, really, to keep going in. I think she could actually be really important because we've seen that maybe Frank Kirby hasn't been the best form of her career. And I think actually, finally getting to play that bit further forward, Georgia sort of showed what she can do from that position. I think if you are picking players on form, She's played as well as anybody. And I think you can probably say the same for, for Karen Carney, who, who came off the bench and has, has, has looked really good whenever she has played. So I think what is good for Phil is that, yes, we talk about, you know, he's starting 11 or what he's going to go with. But actually, the players that have come in have done so well. And, you know, you can't really criticise his changes at the moment because it's kept us winning. And, you know, you look at Rachel Daly, Tony Duggan... You know, Georgia, they've all played so well. And I think, you know, in terms of that, the, I, I wouldn't want to be feeling in terms of making his, his next selection for the next starting eleven. Yeah, it's not going to be easy, that's for sure. And you mentioned Karen Carney there. She played that important role again coming off the bench. Is this a substitution we're likely to see repeated throughout the tournament, Rebecca? Yeah, I definitely think so. She, I mean, she's, again, there's that sort of seniority that Phil can fall back on and rely on. Um, I think, I mean, she is, this is her fourth World Cup. I think we are less likely potentially to see her in the starting 11s. Um, but, you know, he knows when he brings her on that the play that she produces can change the game. She, she you know, she set that second goal up last night. She'd only been on for a few minutes. Um, and that's, that's the kind of player that she is. And I think he will use that increasingly as we go through the tournament, bring her on in those moments where maybe other players are a little fatigued, suffering from cramp, those kind of things. And know that he's not bringing on a player who... Could, you know, things could go either way for them. He's bringing on a player who could change, change the game, you know, going forward, even if that's only, only ten minutes to go. Claire, do you see any way that uh, Phil Neville could play Stanway, Paris, and Kirby in the same team? <sighs> that would be amazing if he could, but I just think it exposes the midfield defensively too much. Um, they're, all, they're all front foot players and. You do need that solidarity, uh, especially in front of the back line, the likes of Jade Moore or, or Kira Walsh. And, and then do you, do you sacrifice you know, the likes of Jill Scott there, um, who just her work rate just goes so unnoticed that I don't think people realise her movement allows 
the likes of Nikita Paris and Lucy Bronze to link so well because she's the one drawing the players out. She's the one creating the angles and the spaces. So for me, without Jill Scott in there, you, you do um, lose something from Lucy and Nikita's game. Is it going to be Fran or Georgia? Uh, it's difficult. Obviously, we've been discussing Fran. Has she been on form or not? I think she's been fantastic. She's, she's just got a lot, a lot of expectation on her shoulders now, whereas Georgia come, comes in and she's you know a little bit fearless. She, she's younger. She hasn't been in the position before. She doesn't have any expectations. So it's a difficult one. I think if you're going to go for the fearless angle, I'd go for Georgia Stanway. Would you? Mm. Okay. Uh, and I know we, we touched on the, the defence with, with you, Claire, but Molly, let me ask you. We, we know Lucy Bronze has been used in midfield before with Phil Neville experimenting uh, there before, but the, the defence with her as the right-back is more solid, isn't it? Definitely. I think she's, you know, as we've all said, she's one of the best right-backs in the world. So obviously it's really important that she actually does well in that position. Um, but I also think that, you know, maybe she will be utilising midfield further into the tournament. I mean, we're looking at potentially a semi-final with the United States or France. And I think against that sort of opposition, perhaps, you know, she would need to go midfield and sort of have, you know, say Rachel Daly at right back and provide some more stability. As well as rotating his players, Phil Neville's other commitment is to possession-based football. We heard from Fran Kirby on this week's Lifetimes podcast how this style has evolved from a more direct approach under Mark Sampson. Claire, do you think this gives England a better chance of beating the leading teams in the world? I think, yes, England do possess the ball more uh, than in, in previous tournaments, but that's just you know, because of the increase in professionalism of the game. Under Mark, we... You know, we were all playing to our strengths. We, you know, he highlighted everyone's strengths and we, we played to them and it was very pragmatic. And yes, it was, you know, some people said it was more of a long ball game. But actually, if you look at England's goals in this tournament so far, they've been on the counter-attack. So yeah, they can possess the ball. They want, actually, they're scoring on the counter-attack. So for me, um, it doesn't really make any difference. Sometimes too much possession can be dangerous. Uh, we need to be a little bit more direct sometimes. We, we saw Japan grow into the game and if they were better in front of the goal, you know, the, the, we would have been talking about a different situation right now. Um, so sometimes being a little bit more pragmatic and direct um, is the way forward, especially when you need to win games. Let me just quickly ask you on, on England's performances as a whole. It's three wins out of three, so it is pretty impressive. The first time they've ever won their yeah. first three World Cup games in a group. But the performances as a whole haven't been ones to light up the, the World Cup stage. Yeah, I think people have such a high expectation of England now that, um, and actually for the first time, we're scrutinising performances where mm. in the past that never happened because the, the the kind of demand and the interest wasn't there. So that high level scrutiny and, and like tactical analysis is there. And actually, you know, I don't think a great deal has you know gone wrong. They've won the games. They, they've made history by being the first to win all three. The group has actually been very difficult and, and one of the most difficult in the tournament. So, you know, you, you can't really complain. And at the end of the day, if we, we end up reaching semi-final, final, no one's going to be reflecting on the performances. They're only just going to be looking at the wins. So um, for me, it's irrelevant. A win's a win. Uh, they'll be growing in confidence, momentum. And yes, we would like to see a little bit, uh, you know, more ruthlessness. But at the end of the day, who cares? We won. <laughs> Quite right. Um, two of the world's best teams, the USA and France, are on England's side of the draw, potential semi-final opponents. How do England measure up against these two? And is there a preference for who we would face if we get there, Rebecca? I mean, it's sort of it's sort of best of two evils, really, isn't it? Um, I mean, on the one hand, you've got a nation driven by 
the pressure of hosting, uh, the pressure of the men's performance last summer. And on the other hand, you've got the best team in the world and I, nobody really wants either of them. Um, I think quite interestingly, I wonder if there will be uh, sort of physical fatigue challenges going forward with both with, with France, not really with the US. They're, they're pretty much the best athletes in the business. Um, but France, obviously, a lot of their main players play for Lyon. So they've gone all the way through. They've been in the Champions League final. They've played all season. They're going to be exhausted. Um, so I will be interested to see whether that ends up affecting their play. Um, and they certainly they've started to look a little bit tired, I would venture. Um, so I think in a way, maybe maybe them, but then you can never underestimate the power of being a host nation. Um, so it's a gamble. The USA, on the other hand, I think one of the things I've noticed, the key difference really between their squad and ours is they're quite a frosty squad. There seems to be, you know, they're not this happy family. They haven't created the atmosphere that Phil's got, um, with, you know, the relationship that he has with the players. That is absolutely not from what I understand happening in the US camp. The US camp does seem that a little bit frostier. It's that kind of super hyper elite setup where maybe you're not actually close friends off the pitch. Um, I mentioned the other day, Megan Rapinoe sort of saying we're intimate and we know each other well, but we're not necessarily close friends. She said that on a podcast, which I thought was quite interesting. Whereas obviously Phil seems to think that this team spirit and this togetherness and this family atmosphere he's created could be the thing that edges it for us. So if we end up playing them, I think that that will really be um, put to the test. Basically, we'll really see how much it matters that you feel like a family or you feel like, um, you know, an elite group of sports people. Well, England's last 16 opponents will become clearer at the end of the group stages, but at the time of recording, they will face either China, New Zealand, Cameroon, Chile or Thailand. Of these teams, Claire, who would England favour and fear the most? I think, you know, out of Thailand and Chile, that should be quite straightforward um, based on their previous results in the, in their group stages. Um for me, New Zealand and China would be quite difficult. Obviously, uh, we we played New Zealand in a in a friendly and and that didn't go to plan. Um, but I think sometimes that can actually work in your favour when when you're expected to win and then you don't win. Um, you kind of have a bit more fire in your belly. So um, I would be more concerned about China because of that. I think it was if it was New Zealand, England would really be you know wanting a bit of revenge. Um, but China, no one has really spoken about them a great deal, and they are a very, very organised team. Um, they're a lot more clinical than Japan. So for me, they would be the banana skin to look out for. Um, nonetheless, I do think England overall, 1v1, have, have enough talent to overcome any of these teams and um, on paper. Sound like I'm from Love Island when I'm saying on paper. <laughs> <laughs> on paper, uh, England should should cruise through. Uh, Rebecca, England should, uh, as Claire has just said there, they should be confident of making it through their last 16 tie. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that momentum, obviously, you know, results-wise, it wasn't the end of the world if we didn't win that game last night, but it certainly will help them in terms of feeling so confident, feeling um, feeling like they're the team to fear. You know, they want people to, to look at the draw and go, oh, we really don't want England. And people probably will start doing that now. Um, so I think they'll be, they'll be riding high off all of that, and there's no reason why this should be any kind of hiccup for them at all. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings so you can navigate it just by listening books contacts calendar double tap to open breakfast with anna from 10 to 11 and get on with your day accessibility there's more to iphone (laughs) 
While England were defeating Japan, the most dramatic and controversial moments of the night came in Paris. Scotland needing to win to keep their chances of progression alive were 3-0 up after 74 minutes. Argentina scored twice in five minutes to put the game in the balance and then were awarded a stoppage time penalty. Lee Alexander saved the spot kick from Valencia Bonsegundo, only for VAR to order a retake as the goalkeeper's foot was judged to have been marginally off the line. The striker scored at the second attempt to break Scottish hearts. Now, the new rule stipulates that a goalkeeper has to have at least one foot on the line when a penalty is taken. That came into force before this World Cup. But, Claire, this is the third time we have seen a retaken penalty awarded at this tournament. It, it does seem very harsh. Yeah, it's just it's just ridiculous. I mean, we're getting to a stage where it's every little thing which is being flagged up. It's just so pedantic and unnecessarily. Um, you know, in order for for a, a goalkeeper to be able to propel themselves, they need to take a step, mm. and that's a natural movement. And yet we're starting to take away natural movements from the game. Um, there's been a lot of negative press around goalkeepers, and, and we're just making it harder than possible, harder than necessary. We'll talk about it later, about them being 3-0 up in the first place. But mm. actually, that is the difference between going for a not for Scotland. And it's let's not even get started about the five minutes that they didn't even get to play because of how long it took. It was just a, a nightmare. But I, I, I think the rule needs to be scrapped. I know in the Premier League, they're not they're not going to use it. Mm. Obviously, if the goalkeeper's off, off the line by a, a bigger margin, then yes, enforce it. But when it's really small, uh, a tiny step forward, it's really not helping... Um, the goalkeeper gain any advantage whatsoever. So for me, it, it needs to be needs to be scrapped. Uh, well, Martin Ziegler revealed this morning at the Times.co.uk that this rule will not be enforced by VAR in the Premier League next season, which is a relief, I guess, Rebecca, in the Premier League. But it still is going to be a minefield for for other competitions when you consider UEFA Cup competitions and also what's happening right now in the World Cup. Yeah, and I don't. I think it's a temporary relief, and I don't think it's a smart. You know, I don't think it's 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 the right way of going about this. All you're doing then, you're never actually addressing the root cause of why this rule has become a problem in the first place. Um, you know, just because people can enjoy their Premier League matches without it, we're still going to have to deal with it in UEFA competitions. We're still going to have to deal with it in World Cups. Um, and if we if we sort of have temporary relief from it, then we're not actually looking at why this might need to be addressed more seriously and possibly rethought. I just think it's um, it's not the answer. And also, what is so unfair as well is that the, the goalkeeper gets booked for, for this offence, which just seems to be another punishment upon another punishment, Claire. Yeah, and I, and I thought, you know, especially in the Premier League, that was being ruled out, the, the double punishment. Uh, it's just a bit extreme. I don't mm. think it's necessary. Uh, you know, if the goalkeeper then does it again, they end up getting sent off. So you're talking about three or four punishments in a row. And I just think it's a bit harsh uh, for something that's, that's you know, such a small, uh, you know, such a small mm. incident. I, for, for me, I, I know it's the rules, um, but as, as Rebecca was saying, we actually do need to get to the root problem of it and discuss why it, it is causing so many issues rather than, um, you know, just ignore it because it's not happening in the Premier League because England... Um, men and under 21s are going to have to face this in the um, in the World Cups and Euros so it needs to be addressed I can't imagine what a penalty shootout is going to look like um, in the latter stages but uh, I think I'm going to have to watch it with my eyes closed uh, Well, I mean Rebecca you were sort of asking the question of why this is happening why do you think they have changed this rule? I mean I think I think like everything that we're finding this tournament and it's funny to find that this is now the most controversial rule given all the <laughs> Um, all the tension over the handball stuff but um, 
I think I think as Claire mentioned earlier, obviously what exacerbates everything is VAR. You can turn a bit of a blind eye to a rule like this and apply it more sensibly when you don't have VAR. But once you have VAR, everything becomes significantly more, you know, much, much clearer red lines, much, much harder to maybe just use a little bit of common sense. Um, I think you can use common sense when it's the human, you know, the naked human eye. And you can't necessarily when, when videos are involved because you know, you're just looking at cold, hard facts. So I think maybe that's where this has got a bit lost in translation and where where we've now found the problems are coming in. I mean, in particular with Lee Alexander, she didn't gain a massive advantage in the movement that she had made for that initial penalty. Um, As painful as it was for Scotland, Claire, you mentioned that we should really talk about the fact that they were 3-0 up. Um, How did it all go so wrong for them? Yeah, if Scotland's game management was better, we wouldn't even be discussing this problem. Um, mm. You know, they allowed Argentina to claw their way back into the game. And, uh, you know, the, Scotland have got a great deal of experience in their team. The fact that they couldn't see that, that lead out is, is really disappointing. And I think when they reflect, that will be the most disappointing element of that game, not the fact that they lost in in such a upsetting way. Mm. It was it was more the fact that they, they threw away such a, a fantastic lead and... At the end of the game, that's how I felt. I felt more frustrated for some of their leaders on the pitch. You know, why haven't they stood up and, you know, taken the game by the scruff of the neck? And, um, you know, they must have had some some tactical awareness about what they do when they go in the lead. Speaking from experience, you know, when when you, you're 3-0 up, you kick the ball out as much as possible. You even try and keep the ball in the corner of the pitch. But the momentum shifted so in favour of Argentina that they just couldn't get a grip of it. And then the fast call at the end really kind of was a nail in the coffin for them. Mm. I mean, for Scotland to be 3-0 up and then, what, with 16 minutes to go, concede those three goals, it would be very deflating for them. But do they bow out of this competition with, with some credit, Rebecca? Absolutely, they're still the most successful Scottish team in uh, in any recent history. Um, I mean, I think it's heartbreaking. Honestly, I'm obviously Molly and I were at the England games. So we weren't watching live because they were on at the same time, but we were we were following it online. And and I almost thought I'm really pleased I wasn't watching it. It's just heartbreaking way to go out. But they they go out with their heads held high. They go out. Um, as kind of icons for young Scottish girls, um, as a sign of how much the game is improving over there, um, and absolute full credit to them. I'm just, I'm just so sad to see them go because I think I would have loved to see them progress through this tournament. And just lastly, on that game, you mentioned it a little bit earlier on the fact that it seemed like no time was added on Claire. It took, I'd say, about three, four, even five minutes for the referee to even decide the penalty should be taken, and then you had the retaken penalty and all that came with that. It just seemed as though no time was added on for any of the extras that was involved in that game. So you can understand why Scotland was so disappointed, distraught at the end of that when yeah. the final whistle was blown. Especially with how the game was going and, you know, it was end to end and either team could have scored to win the game. And both of them wanted the game to continue because they needed a win. Um, but I think, you know, the referee made a mistake there. I don't know whether she wanted to avoid any further um, controversy by just blowing the whistle, but... Unfortunately, she has now created a situation for herself where neither team was given any kind of advantage or any kind of opportunity to go out and win the game. And thus, both are are out of the tournament. And uh, it's sad, sad, sad for Scotland in particular. I was quite upset after the game because of it, because, you know, we all want the home nations to progress and do well because it benefits football in, in, in our leagues. And it benefits the, the the young children coming through. So it's a shame in that aspect. But uh, ultimately, throwing away free, a free goal lead is, you know, it's, it's their own fault. Mm. 
Well, while the action on the pitch is hotting up, the number of supporters in the crowds continues to disappoint. There are only 14,319 watching England versus Japan. Rebecca, was there any explanation given for the small crowd? Yeah, I mean, I would also firstly say I I would raise the question of whether it was actually 14,000. Really? It's, a, it's unconfirmed at this stage, but um, it seems to potentially be that those the attendance figures are based on what they've sold and not who actually come through the gate in person on the day. It looked a lot less than the Scotland game. It certainly didn't look a thousand more. Um, it was very, very quiet. Um, so, yeah, I'm mean, hugely disappointing. And Nice, actually, I, I popped this in my piece uh this morning, Nice has had the worst attendances pretty much. Um, they, they held the worst attended match of the whole tournament so far, which was three to Thailand. They only had 9,000 for that. Um, and if you think 9,000 sort of rattling around in a stadium that holds 35,000, it looks like 200, frankly, when it's that small. Um, I think the difficulty is the host nations seem to be turning out for other teams at this stage. You obviously assume that that will change as you progress because the stakes get higher and the interest gets gets greater. Um, but I've been I've been a little bit disappointed because every French game, the French fans have packed it out and every other game has, has sort of maybe flagged a little bit. Um, but saying that, we had an amazing crowd in La Havre. They, there were 20,000 there. They really packed it out and it felt like a proper World Cup match. So hopefully going forward that, you know, it won't be so, so much of an issue because fans want to come out for those really really exciting games that matter but it has been a bit of a you know it didn't necessarily have a world cup atmosphere last night if i had to put my hand on my heart and be really honest about it Mm. and what do you think the issue is there rebecca is it that that fifa haven't done enough advertising within france or are the bigger cities not embracing this world cup yeah, I, th- I think it's such a mixture of factors. I know that when the host cities, uh, when it, when basically bids had to go in for the host cities, I think the direct quote from the official FIFA was, no one was scrambling over themselves. You know, no one was rushing to, to host this, which is bad in itself. Um, but once they got this, they, they realised they were going to be hosting and momentum started going and FIFA put all these messages out saying how well sold it was. Everybody got really excited and thought, you know, this is a great, obviously great tourism opportunity. Um, and then bizarrely, we seem to have slightly gone backwards. There aren't loads of adverts be frank i know the bbc did a piece about this as well we've spoken about it but you know i arrived in the the airport in paris the other day and there was a whole wall of adverts for the hsbc sevens and you just think there's a tournament that's not even happening at the moment and there was nothing about the world cup so there there definitely could be questions raised about the marketing the money that's gone into that the advertising um and then also i suppose i suppose what's interesting for me from a from a journalist's point of view, is the disjoint between the enthusiasm of the French press, who have thrown themselves into this way more than I probably ever thought that they would, um, sending dozens of reporters, you know, putting it on the back pages every day. They've really been getting behind it, um, and how that clearly kind of hasn't really filtered through to the public. Um, maybe it's posting the tennis so so recently, you know, maybe it is having stuff like the sevens coming up. But you know, if you're France, you've just won the World Cup, you're hosting another one. Why wouldn't you be? You know, why wouldn't you be clambering to pay 10 euros to go down to your local stadium and watch the best teams in the world? Mm, yeah, you, you can't help but ask those questions. Um, Claire, what does it make, as a player, does it make a difference if there are lots of empty seats in a stadium? I think in a, in a game where it was, you know, first v second, not so much, especially in Nice, where they're not really a, a it's not really a footballing town. Um, and even the men's, men's uh, stadium rarely sells out. But as a player, you are aware when there's when it's not. You do full. notice. You do, especially in the warm up when it's a little bit more relaxed. When the game comes, you don't take any notice whatsoever. Um, but you know, last ten minutes, if you really need a win and you can hear the noise, that 
that can push you on. Yeah, I was going to say, you can feed yeah, off the energy. I, I think, you know, you, you go through stages of a game, it just depends on um, how self-aware you are. If it's a disjointed game, you're more aware because you kind of you kind of can switch off. And I know in my position, whenever I'd go and take a, a throw-in, that's you kind of step out of the pitch and, and then you can feel the, the crowd and the atmosphere. But um, when a game is very intense, it is a little bit harder to take it in. But definitely in a warm-up, you're aware of the empty seats during a game yes or no depending on on the player uh, but when it's a you know it's a, a do or die game it it definitely does give you the extra edge and and you know i remember in the fa cup at wembley we, the west ham fans were so fantastic and mm. hearing them it really does give you that extra push so i mean yes or no depending on the player but for me uh, especially in a world cup you'd expect to have that you know electric atmosphere and that has been missing so can it be disheartening then when it's a soulless bowl that you're in? I don't think anyone takes it too personally, but uh, and knowing it's it's not the home nation playing, you can't expect it to be um, you know full to the brim. But as the stage goes on, I think if it does uh, keep disappointing in the numbers, I think you all kind of think, think a bit like, oh, this is a bit odd. Why is mm. why are people not coming to watch? Mm. Uh, and Rebecca, just to go back to to what you were saying about when this World Cup was awarded, perhaps cities weren't clambering over each other to to be host cities. One solution that's been put forward to, to boost the atmosphere, to boost attendances, perhaps is to play games in stadiums with smaller capacities. Is that what FIFA should have done? No, I think that would be caving into FIFA incom- incompetence, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. um, I haven't had much sleep, can you tell me? <laughs> um, coming, coming straight out against FIFA. No, I think it's a balance. I think it worked in the half. Obviously, it was a smaller stadium, therefore it felt like more people. It was technically more people, but it also felt much busier, much more exciting. Um, 20,000 would have felt much less in, in the stadium here in Nice. Um, but yeah, I, I think if you if you say, oh, well, we should play in smaller stadiums, there is demand for this. There was demand in Canada four years ago when there wasn't that much press coverage. Something has gone wrong, clearly. If we can't match the attendances of Canada four years ago, there is interest, there is demand from fans, and there's obviously some kind of disjoint going on. And I think if we say, oh, well, maybe we should have played in a smaller stadium, then that's defeatist, and it's not fair on the quality of the women's game that deserves deserve to have the fans come who want to be there. And just just finally, Rebecca, just remind us, uh, obviously we're able to see the, the World Cup here on, on terrestrial TV, certainly the Lionesses in action. What is it like in, in France? Is that on a, a behind a paywall or is it on what would be terrestrial TV over there? It is on terrestrial TV. Every game that I've tried to tune into, I've been able to. Um, it's not always on the, the sort of, you know, what would be BBC One and BBC Two, which is TF1. Um, the host nation are always playing on TF1, the, the number one channel, basically. Every time I've tried to watch them, they've been on there. So as a rule, it's um, it's really, really easy to access. So you'd hope that would then filter back through to people, you know, popping it on in the evening and then thinking, oh, I wonder if there's still tickets available. Mm-hmm. But then again, as we get further through, there aren't tickets available for the semi-final and the final. Um, and questions were raised there about whether they should have played in Parc de France rather than Leon, so you know it's it's sort of a bit of a it's a bit of a muddle, and it's you know we've kind of got the wrong way round almost. Mm. Ah, indeed, indeed. Well, that is it for now. Many thanks to our guests today, Claire Rafferty, Rebecca Myers and Molly Hudson. Remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet. It is just a pound a week for an eight-week trial. Search The Times subscription for more information. We'll be back on Monday after what will hopefully be another positive performance for the Lionesses on Sunday. See you then. The Game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times... 
head to thetimes.co.uk. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. 